Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. Today, God speaks to us from Acts chapter 1, 1 through 9, and chapter 2, 1 through 4. I will be reading in Spanish. Estimado Teófilo, en mi primer libro me referí a todo lo que Jesús comenzó a hacer y enseñar hasta el día en que fue llevado al cielo, luego de darles instrucciones por medio del Espíritu Santo a los apóstoles que había escogido. Después de padecer la muerte, se presentó dándoles muchas pruebas convincentes de que estaba vivo. Durante 40 días se les apareció y les habló acerca del reino de Dios. Una vez más, mientras comía con ellos, ordenó, no se alejen de Jerusalén, sino esperen la promesa del Padre de la cual les he hablado. Juan bautizó con agua, pero dentro de pocos días ustedes serán bautizados con el Espíritu Santo. Entonces los que estaban reunidos con él preguntaron, Señor, ¿es ahora cuando vas a restablecer el reino de Israel? ¿No les toca a ustedes conocer la hora ni el momento determinado por la autoridad misma del Padre, contestó Jesús. Pero cuando venga el Espíritu Santo sobre ustedes, recibirán poder y serán mis testigos tanto en Jerusalén como en toda Judea y Samaria hasta los confines de la tierra. Habiendo dicho esto, mientras ellos lo miraban, fue llevado a las alturas hasta que una nube lo ocultó de su vista. Chapter 2, capítulo 2. Cuando llegó el día de Pentecostés, estaban todos juntos en el mismo lugar. De repente vino del cielo un ruido como el de una violenta ráfaga de viento y llenó toda la casa donde estaban reunidos. Aparecieron entonces unas lenguas como de fuego que se repartieron y se posaron sobre cada uno de ellos. Todos fueron llenos del Espíritu Santo y comenzaron a hablar en diferentes lenguas, según el Espíritu les concedía expresarse. The word of the Lord. Uh, we'll actually be looking at some, uh, some topics uh, that entire denominations have actually been uh, built around. In fact, uh, I come from a church tradition, uh, and I pastored in that tradition for uh, many years, uh, and it was one that was actually founded in large part Um, as a result of some commitments to particular ideas uh, that we're going to be looking at over the next uh, several weeks. Uh, specifically, what we're going to look at uh, is we're going to, today, we're going to be looking at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in coming weeks, we're going to take a look at the supernatural and charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, and also the role of some of those gifts in the contemporary life of the church, all of which, together, again, are very, debate, uh, very debated topics. And I'll actually say, uh, depending on what one's uh, church tradition might have been, uh, if you come from a church background, uh, my guess is that more than likely, uh, the next several weeks are either going to be um, very challenging uh, or maybe a little bit uh, uncomfortable, depending on what vantage point you might be coming from. Uh, because if you've spent any time in the church, you know that these are topics that, again, are very debated. Now, 
I cannot get fully into all of the different intricacies uh, of the debate. There are many different Christians who hold a wide range of views, very nuanced views on some of these issues. Uh, and so it can be difficult to define some of the perspectives uh, in two broad terms. However, what I can say uh, is that, again, I have pastored in two very different streams of Christianity that tend to represent uh, caricatures of these topics. Uh, and what I mean by that is, for many years, I was uh, a Pentecostal pastor uh, in the Assemblies of God, uh, a denomination known as the Assemblies of God. Of course, now I'm a pastor in the Pres a Presbyterian pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America. And if you don't know, these two streams of Christianity often get caricatured when you begin talking about the work of the Holy Spirit uh, and how we understand the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, on two ends of a very different spectrum. So on the one side, you have uh, in Pentecostals often the caricature of holy rollers that are always seeking and chasing after supernatural and exuberant experiences. That tends to be the caricature. Uh, but then on the other side, you have Presbyterians who are often caricatured as uh, the frozen chosen who uh, give are very comfortable giving uh, condescending side eyes to anybody clapping or raising their hands above the belly button. That gets real uncomfortable for the frozen chosen. But here's the deal. While the caricatures aren't completely unfounded, they are often unfair. Meaning, sure, there are definitely extremes that exist on that spectrum, but there are actually many who are truly seeking to honor God with what they believe the Bible teaches about some of these issues that we'll look at in the coming weeks. And for me, this issue, among many, has been one that I've had to wrestle with uh, deeply uh, in the Bible, in Scripture, in large part because I've traversed that very wide spectrum. But here's the deal. Neither one of those caricatures is faithful to Scripture, and neither one of them should be a sufficient view for the Christian. So today, in, and in the coming weeks, the goal is to shoot for clarity on what we believe the Bible teaches. I'll give you a heads up right now that at times this might require us to get a little bit uh, biblically technical, but I hope that in the end that clarity that I'm shooting for actually produces an even greater depth of faith and in particular experience of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. And so with all of that said, if you've been with us, uh, today we're continuing our series uh, called NUMA, Understanding the Work of the Spirit. Uh, and over the uh, coming weeks, including today, uh, we're going to be looking at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What are we to do with the, the charismatic gifts of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy? And again today, we're going to consider first, though, before we get to those things, you need to pin all of those. Next week we'll hit all of those. But for today, we want to consider what does it mean to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit? And so to understand that, I want to take a look at two things, just two points. Let's consider spirit, spirit baptism and then second, spirit filling. All right, let's look at both of those first. Uh, so to begin, we, uh, to get a, a good handle, we have to actually take a look at what's happening in the book of Acts. The reason being is because much of what the Bible teaches about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is found in the book of Acts, or at least much of what people assume the Bible teaches uh, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in the book of Acts. Uh, we see in uh, Acts 1, Jesus is speaking of this baptism that's to come. 
And then in Acts 2, we see the disciples filled with the Spirit, that this promise that Jesus gives in Acts 1 is fulfilled uh, in Acts 2. And then throughout the rest of the narrative of Acts, uh, which was written by uh, Luke, what we see is the Spirit at work in some spectacular ways. And so what we want to try to do is understand what's happening throughout that narrative. So to begin, let's take a look again at what Jesus says in Acts 1, uh, verses uh, 4 through 8. Let me just reread those to you, because we want to make sure they're clear and fresh in our minds. It says this, that on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard about, or you have heard me speak about. For John, the Bapt- for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, as a result of the command that you just heard Jesus give, the disciples then go to Jerusalem and they wait for this promise. It's a promise that will make them, according to Jesus, witnesses, and this is key, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Key. Fast forward a little bit. We'll come back to why that matters. The story then picks up in Acts 2, which is on the day of Pentecost. Again, let me reread for you what occurred now when the Spirit of God descends and actually comes. So Acts 1, Jesus promises. Acts 2, this is what happens when the Spirit comes. When the day of Pentecost came, they were gathered in one place. Suddenly, a sound like like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there are three extraordinary things that happen here, three things that uh, would blow all of our minds if we were to see them, uh, three things that happens when the Spirit comes. You see here that there was a violent wind there was fire, and there was speaking in tongues. Now, I wish I had time to unpack all of those uh, fully because each one of those have some really deep historical uh, meaning and purpose. And again, next week, we're going to consider the, the speaking in tongues portion. So again, pin it. But for now, let me just quickly focus in on those two ideas of wind and fire and see actually the historic precedent for those in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, the wind and fire represented the power and the might of God. Their presence represented the very presence of God in the Old Testament. And this context is the reason why we call the sending of the Spirit, as evidenced by these markers, we call this event a redemptive historical event. I need you to log that term because we're going to come back to it several times. It's an important one. A redemptive historical event is an action of God that furthers his plan of redemption for his people, all of which is deeply rooted in how God has revealed himself throughout redemptive history. 
right? So it's an event that's advancing God's redemptive plan, but that's rooted in redemptive history. Now, of course, the, the, probably the, the most significant redemptive historical event that we tend to think about would be the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, right? So this event was an event that took place that accomplished a work that was far-reaching, but by design, that work only happened once, but happened for all. That's a redemptive historical event, something that takes place, that moves forward the redemption that God has in store, but that happens once and happens for all. And similarly, as a redemptive historical event, what we're reading about here in Acts 1 and 2, the sending of the Spirit as seen in Acts, is a one-time event that happened once for all, much like the cross and the resurrection. It happened once, yet reverberates for eternity. So what then does that mean for what we see in Acts 2? Well, here in this passage, we see the presence of God, which is the Spirit of God, coming with all the power and all the might, the fire of God, coming and filling these Christians in the upper room. How is that historically significant? Remember I said these, these uh, redemptive historical events have deep theological uh, and historic roots. Well, do you remember, just as an example, again, we could spend a lot of time on this, but just as one example, do you remember the burning bush of Moses? Do you remember that story? God comes, the very presence of God comes to Moses, and when God came, he came in fire, and he came into a burning bush, and yet, though this bush was set aflame by the presence of God, that bush was not consumed by the flames. And what we're seeing here in Acts 2 is the presence of God coming as fire. But now that fire rests upon the Christian. But now, just like the burning bush, they too aren't consumed by this flame, but rather empowered by it. This story emphasizes God's power and presence, his spirit, which now resides in his people. And here is where we get to see this redemptive historic event that happens one time but has far-reaching consequences, is that throughout the rest of Acts, there will be these mini Pentecosts that occur where we see similar extraordinary events take place, evidences that the Spirit of God, the presence of God has come, and where this presence occurs through what is called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The first time we see that extraordinary event of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is here in, in Acts 2. What we're seeing there is the disciples, they are in Jerusalem. And of course, these disciples, they would have been uh, part of the Jewish people. But then throughout the rest of the narrative, we have these other mini Pentecostal, uh, Pentecost events that mirror the first one. The next time we see these events is in Acts 8, where Peter and John, they go to Samaria, and they preach to Samaria, uh, Samaritan converts there. And as you might know, the Samaritans, they were a people that actually had roots in the Jewish people, uh, but they were often viewed by many in the Jewish community as being unpure and unclean because historically the Samaritans had interwoven their lives with pagan peoples. But then in Acts 8, what you see is that the Spirit is poured out on them, 
serving as a bit of a bridge for God's presence to now move from the Jewish people out beyond just the Jewish people. Because the next time we see another one of these mini Pentecost events is in Acts 8 with Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile, which blew the categories of many of the Jewish people of the day. Peter is astounded that when he goes to Cornelius, the Spirit's baptism is now even upon the Gentiles. And then the last mini Pentecost that we see is in Acts 19 amongst the Ephesians. Now, why is that significant? Well, what's amazing about the Ephesian church was actually the diversity that existed within the church. So Paul in Ephesians 2, is he's uh, speaking to the Gentiles of the Ephesian church, reminding them that there was a time when they were separated from Christ, he says, excluded from citizenship, uh, and as they were uh, treated as foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But that now, he says, this is again Paul speaking to the Gentiles in Ephesus, but now in Christ you have once, uh, you who once were far away have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then, hear this, when speaking now to both Jews and Gentiles in that same church, he says, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. The Spirit had established in Ephesus a unifying work across cultural and racial differences in this church. Ephesus was another mini-Pentecost, like Acts 2, where the gospel had now gone out to all people. Now, did you catch what was happening throughout that entire narrative of the book of Acts? Jesus said in Acts 1 that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you, be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What the book of Acts shows us, in Acts 2, we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, like Jesus said. In Acts 8, we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Samaria, like Jesus said. In Acts 10, we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the Gentiles, or those who represented to the ends of the earth, all peoples, like Jesus said. And by Acts 19, we see that pouring is happening amongst a mixed group of people who are all now one in Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is a marker of God's redemptive plan to bring all peoples from every tribe, nation, and tongue into the fold of God's people. It was a redemptive historic event that took place in the way that it did, uniquely in the book of Acts, but it has eternally reverberating consequences from which we all now benefit today. And the reason why this matters, and the reason why I spend time showing you that, is that first, we ought to praise God for his remarkable work to tear down the walls of divisions. We've spoke of this often, but there is no institution on the planet that can compare to the vast diversity that the church, capital C Church, all Christians around the world, has. There's no other uh, philosophy or idea that is able to pull people together from such a vast variety of backgrounds and languages and cultures like the Christian faith. And all of that has been the work of the Spirit of God working amongst us. But also look around this room. We ought to be in awe that we are all coming from various backgrounds, cultures, languages, and experiences. If you are a Christian, 
and you are here, you are one as a result of spirit baptism. But one of the major differences, right, with all that in mind, one of the major differences and debates on this topic of spirit baptism is when exactly does that baptism happen? That is, does it happen at salvation, right, when someone professes faith in Christ, or is it something that some call a second work of grace? And I draw this out because depending on your background, I need to at least point it out. There are some who hold that this whole idea of spirit baptism is a second work that God does, meaning we are saved by grace, and we trust that the Spirit is at work in that salvation, so that's the first experience, the first work of grace. But then some would argue that there's a second work of grace when we are baptized in the Spirit, and that that baptism comes with additional giftings and abilities like speaking in tongues. Now, again, we have to pin that, and we'll get to it next week. But we do not believe that that's what's happening here in the book of Acts and what Scripture teaches about this, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we don't believe that's what it is or what it produces. Instead, we hold that because Acts presents something unique in redemptive history, that this baptism is representative of something that occurs amongst all of God's people, that being that the Spirit of God now resides in all of us, at the moment of our salvation. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, he puts it this way, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you, have, you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When we come to faith, we are given the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, we believe that the Spirit is the one who made us alive in Christ to begin with and even gave us the ability to choose Christ. The Spirit is at work in us and through us even before we acknowledge that Christ was our Savior. And when the Spirit comes, it makes us alive in Christ. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter, His divine power has given you everything that you need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, we do not need an additional work of grace or another baptism because the Spirit already resides in you from the moment you profess Jesus. But second, the other thing, is understanding the main purpose of Luke's narrative in Acts helps determine what we ought to expect as normative and what we ought to see as unique to just that moment of history. Much of Acts as we said, is unique, not something that we ought to expect to happen in the same way today. And again, we're going to cover that in more week, uh, in coming weeks. But for now, what do we need to consider then about the Spirit's power in Acts? When we believe that the same Spirit, the same Spirit of power in the book of Acts is the same Spirit of God that is working in you and me today, So if we know some things that we might not expect to happen again, what are some of the things that we can expect to happen? Let's consider that second piece, which gives us insight into that, the Spirit's filling. All right, without getting super technical, and I know that some may already feel like I've gotten super technical, throughout the New Testament, the different writers of the Bible, the New Testament, tend to use the same phrases, but in different ways. So when Paul, just for example, when Paul speaks of uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he seems to focus more on salvation, 
So we see that in places like 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Right? So he's, you see that there? He's including this baptism of the Holy Spirit as that which makes you part of God's people. To form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. Okay, so this is the salvific work of the spirit that unifies us to the people of God and to Jesus. But Luke, he tends to use some of this terminology a little bit different. We've already saw that Luke, again, who wrote the book of Acts, records Jesus speaking to his disciples of a coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? We saw that in Acts 1. But for various reasons, in the context of Luke, that cannot possibly be referring to them, to the disciples experiencing salvation as though they didn't already have the Spirit. Because back in John 20, right, before Jesus, uh, or earlier, before Jesus is about to ascend, we're told that Jesus breathed on them, breathed on the, the disciples, and as he breathed on them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So that means that in Acts 1, when he makes this promise, they already had the Holy Spirit. And yet here you have Jesus speaking of a baptism. But then, I mean, I'm pr I promise, I'm trying really hard to not get super technical. But then, as we said... When Luke records the Spirit in Acts 2, Jesus makes the promise in Acts 1, in Acts 2, the promised coming of the Spirit from Jesus, look again how it's phrased. We're told that they were filled with the Spirit. So Jesus promises a baptism in Acts 1, but then when it actually happens, Paul records it as a filling of the Holy Spirit. Now that is a very key term. Because the idea of filling is often used uh, for those who have already been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right? They already have the Spirit of God living within them. For example, in Acts 4, we are told twice that the disciples, those who were in the upper room of Acts 2, in Acts 4 we're told that they were again filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result of that filling, they spoke boldly. So it seems that Luke understands that both the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, was a, a redemptive historic event that represented the inclusion of all peoples, and that the filling of the Holy Spirit, all of this kind of took place at one time in Acts 2 in the upper room, but he is making a distinction that there seems to be uh, something, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, they are related, but they are distinct. So, with that backdrop in mind, let me try to be clear about what I think the Bible is telling us. That Christian, when you came to faith, you received the Holy Spirit. And now that Spirit, the power and the presence of God, now resides within you. You are, Christian, a burning bush. Not consumed by the fire, but empowered by it. Because all that Christ has accomplished for you is applied to you by the presence of the Spirit within you. You have everything that you need for life and godliness. There is no additional work of grace or second baptism. However, there are also times when we will be filled with the Spirit in such a way that we experience a boldness in our faith in the work of Jesus. A power for a greater sense of, of joy in our salvation. A greater resistance to our besetting sins. A, a greater fervor to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus. And in those seasons, in those moments, this is when we can say we are filled with the Spirit. 
And this, my friends, I draw out because this should be something we desire and ask God to give us. God, give me a greater joy in my salvation. Give me a greater resistance to sin. Give me a, a greater fervor to make known the good news of Jesus. Give me a greater sense of you in my life. Fill me with your spirit. In Ephesians 5, I love this, Paul says, this might sound a little bit like, huh, what is he talking about? But he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's always been an interesting verse to me. Don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. But what he's drawing out there, what he's showing us, is that whatever you might think you need from wine, right, whatever joy there is to find in wine, whatever confidence there is to find in wine, right, whatever liquid courage might do for you, don't look to the wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit to find what you are looking for. I mean, here's the consistent reality for us all. We can have a knowledge that the Spirit is within us. Right? I'm articulating this. We've been articulating it for weeks. The Spirit is at work in you, and there may be many of us here that say yes and amen. I believe that. But even though we know it, we do not have that overwhelming sense of that presence. But when we do, when we have that overwhelming sense of his presence, our faith overflows into all areas of life. It radically transforms the way we experience our relationship with God. And it's in those moments when we're filled with the Spirit. The famous pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he had a really great analogy of this. He basically said, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he said the normal Christian experience is a lot like a child walking and holding the hand of her father. She knows that hand is safe. She knows that hand is secure. She knows that hand is trustworthy as it leads and guides her. You know, and what more could a child ask for than such confidence in, in the knowledge that her father is holding her hand? But that confident knowledge that experience of holding her father's hands as they walk along is nothing like the feeling when he instead picks her up, wraps his strong arms around her, and with the firmest of hugs says, you are my child, and I love you with an endless love. And being filled with the Spirit is experiencing that kind of joy. It's taking what we know to be true and experiencing it at a different level. Experiencing the relationship we know we have in a completely different kind of way. And here's how I want to summarize all of this. Right, what does this actually mean then for us? Well, I want to present to you, if you are a Christian, what you have. And if you're not a Christian and you're here, or maybe you're processing what the Christian faith says, I want you to know what's extended to you. Christian, hear what you have. Those of you processing the Christian faith, hear what is being extended to you. At the moment of your salvation, at your baptism of the Holy Spirit, you were given salvation and a joy in that salvation, an assurance of God's love and the opportunity to have the, the Word of God come alive to you in all new ways. 
Right? For many of us, as we remember when we became first aware of what it really meant that Jesus lived and died and rose again for me, when we remember when that really sunk down, do you remember that feeling of joy, of that assurance, and that desire then to know God in deeper ways? And I just want you to be reminded that in Christ, by the power of His Spirit, you have all of those things. But I also want you to hear that the filling of the Spirit, this overflowing of joy in that salvation can also be yours. An overflowing assurance of God's love, an insatiable desire for His Word, and this longing for my life to conform to His Word. And like Peter, right, in his experience in the upper room when he was filled with the Spirit, we talked about this last week. Do you remember what happened to Peter when he was filled with the Spirit? I mean, he went from the guy who denies Jesus three times, pretending like he never knew Jesus, to after being filled with the Spirit, speaking with boldness before thousands of people, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. All of this was as a result of this filling that took place that just ended up overflowing him with great faith and trust in the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit have made, have made you the people of God, has made you a burning bush in which God's presence resides. Praise be to God. But the filling of the Holy Spirit overflows our experiences of that which is yours in Jesus. And so my question would be to all of us, do we want that? Do we want that overflowing joy of salvation? Do we want that overflowing sense of assurance of God's love? Do we desire an insatiable desire to conform our life to God's Word. I know I do. My question would be, do you want to experience that? Because if we do, I trust that it's something that, of course, God desires to give us. And so my prayer for myself is certainly going to be, and my prayer would be for you all, that you would also have a similar kind of prayer. God, fill me with your Spirit. I mean, imagine a, every day, Waking up, God, today, fill me with your spirit. Allow me to overflow with the joy of your salvation. Give me a, a desire to conform my life to your word today, God. Fill me with your spirit. I mean, I hope that would be our prayer. And I trust that as we believe that God desires to do this in us, that he will meet us there. And we will experience that overflow. Ultimately, as we saw throughout the book of Acts, so that we might be a people who proclaim with boldness what God has done in our lives and what he seeks to do in the lives of those that are around us. May God's Spirit make it so. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we thank you for your word that does present to us not just um, knowledge that we can know, but an experience that we can experience, truly. We thank you, of course, for the knowledge that makes us aware of our need for Jesus. And we thank you for the reality that your Spirit is the one who applies the work of Jesus to our lives. But Lord, we need more than just knowledge. We need that knowledge to sink deep into our hearts, to even flow, overflow out into our lives. And so, Lord, I do pray that our prayer would be, God, fill us with your Spirit. God, help us by the work of that Spirit.
to be overflowing with the joy of our salvation, overflowing with an assurance of your love, overflowing with a desire to conform our lives to your word. And as you do that work in us, we also trust that it will make us a bold people who seek to make known your gospel message to a world that is in need. Father, send your spirit to do this work in us and through us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.